Welcome to Update One, the podcast of the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. Update One provides a forum for listeners to learn about national stories focusing on news, politics, and current events. Now, the latest edition of Update One. I'm National Press Club member Tom Young here with National Public Radio's Mary Louise Kelly. Mary Louise co-hosts the NPR magazine All Things Considered. Prior to that, she served as NPR's national security correspondent. She recently visited North Korea to cover the 70th anniversary of the country's founding, and she wrote about the difficulties of reporting from a secretive regime. Mary Louise, thank you so much for joining us. In your article for the NPR website, you described your North Korean guide as a one-man journalism prevention service. (laughs) Tell us about that experience. Hey, Tom, it's a pleasure to be here. The experience of reporting from North Korea is like no other no other place I've ever reported from, and I include authoritarian regimes in that. You fly in. As a journalist, you jump through a million hoops just trying to get there, trying to get a visa. How do you apply for a visa when North Korea doesn't have an embassy in the U.S., when the U.S. State Department forbids Americans from traveling on a U.S. passport? How do you buy a plane ticket when... Air Corio, the state-owned airline, does not take credit cards, and you can't wire the money because you'd be violating U.S. sanctions. So you feel like you have jumped through, as I say, a million hoops before you've landed. You land, and the second you clear passport control, there's someone waiting for you, and they introduce themselves. And in my case, it was Mr. Kim, a lovely man, whose job was to be glued to my side every moment that we were in North Korea. I mean, he really, he walked, you know, six days later, he walked me up to that same passport control and he did not disappear until I was through it and on the other side and stayed in the hotel with us. And you can't go anywhere, do anything without him. And sometimes we had more than one minder. We had a couple of minders. We were a team of three that had gone in from NPR. So it was a, was a very tightly controlled you're there on the government's terms and you see what they want you to see type experience. From your article, it looked like the last thing they wanted was for you to meet an ordinary North Korean. <laughs> As I say, they, you see what they want you to see. And I kept thinking, if you look at it from the perspective of a North Korean government minder, What's the upside to letting me talk to anybody? I mean, this could all go horribly wrong for him. Um, and what's the upside of letting me speak to someone and try to have a frank conversation? So we would have these um, discussions multiple times a day, right up to the last morning that we were there, where I was saying, I just want to go see the subway in Pyongyang to see the daily commute, or take me to a park, or can I just walk down the sidewalk and watch the bus pick up people on their way to work? Anything to get a sense of daily life. And the metro example, I was on a mission just to ride, just to see the commute. How do people get to work? What's it look like? And we were told, no, there's not enough time. And I'm saying, there, there's actually, we have a few hours. We could, we could do this. Nope, I don't have time. <laughs> I'm like, I, you know, you you're with you're stuck with me anyway. Why don't why don't we go see it? No, it's closed today. I'm saying really, but <laughs> this guy over there just told me he came in on the metro today. <laughs> it must be open. And then you know, a second government minder would would chime in. The very last reason we got was something like it's for your own safety. You might get lost. And I thought, 
okay, what's why is this so problematic? And I never got a straight answer on that, but I think I think it it has to do with the very complicated relationship that North Korea has with journalists at all. I mean, there's just no tradition of reporters roaming around asking questions, and particularly with American reporters, given the strained diplomatic relations, the decades of bad blood and mutual suspicion since the Korean War, um, and the current very tense diplomacy. Um, it is just a an extremely complicated relationship that Mr. Kim and I were navigating every day from dawn till till well past sundown. That's sort of a good lead into uh, another question about the relationship between you and the people you're dealing with there. In a country like that, does anybody really understand what you're trying to do as an independent journalist or do they assume you're as beholden to your government as they are to theirs? So that's a great question. There is a press in North Korea. It's completely state-owned, state-controlled. There's an English-language version, the Pyongyang Times, that they hand you on the Air Corio flight in once you've managed somehow to buy your ticket, which is completely on message with the government. Um, Kim Jong-un is on the front. You have to, I have, you know, you see news agents in Pyongyang, and they're very careful when you buy the, the Korean-language newspaper um, how they fold the newspaper because Kim Jong-un is always on the front page and you don't want to crease his picture. You can get in huge trouble for wow. creasing his picture. So it's very carefully folded and presented so as to not be disrespectful to uh, the North Korean leader. Um, so no is the short answer. The government minders range in experience. You know, some have dealt with some Western press for years. American reporters aren't allowed to go usually, um, but Reporters from China, reporters from Russia, uh, other, other you know, European nations um, have had a little bit more access. And so they're used to dealing with reporters. Our government minder, Mr. Kim, this was only his second experience with journalists. I think we were learning as we went, both of us, what limits he could push, um, where that line was. And he was very curious, asked me all kinds of questions about Everything from what brand of lipstick I wore to uh, <laughs> how I'd met my husband. Uh, I showed him Facebook. You know, most North Koreans can't access the internet. So he had seen the New York Times, for example, because uh, he works for the foreign ministry. But could he roam around you know, beyond the paywall? I don't think so. Um, so he was curious about all kinds of things. He was asking me about the U.S. midterms and how I thought they would unfold. And he was pretty well informed in terms of the issues, the candidates, the stakes how the U.S. electoral system works, but was utterly flummoxed when I turned to him and said, what do you think about the U.S. midterms? What does it feel like to live in a country where you can't vote? And he looked at me like that was the craziest question he'd ever heard. And his, his answer basically boiled down to, why would I need to vote? Our country is run by Kim Jong-un, and he's always right. Why would I need a say in that? <laughs> it was looking at each other from across just a different galaxy of right. understanding of right. the world. The environment you're describing reminds me of something that happened during my time with the Associated Press. An earthquake had taken place in one of the Soviet republics, and I managed to telephone someone in an affected area who spoke English. And when I asked her how things look, she said, everything is fine. Everything is always fine. <laughs> and that sounds like a joke, but it's actually kind of sad yeah, or maybe not frightening. Funny. So even if you get to talk to a regular person in an authoritarian regime, uh, if, if you manage to do that, 
how likely are they just to shut down? To my earlier comment about speaking at each other from, from across a galaxy or from different universes, their understanding of what a Western reporter is there trying to do. You know, my mission as an American reporter is I've traveled all these miles to come see your country, to talk to you, to ask you what you, what you think about your life and your country and the world. A North Korean would have no experience of being asked those questions by a Western reporter, by any reporter seeing that on the TV news. That just doesn't exist. The other thing I'm always mindful of, uh, you know, whether it's in North Korea or places in the Middle East or um, other authoritarian states that I've reported from, is I'm pushing to try to get somebody to tell me what they really think. There's a huge risk to that person. I have a U.S. passport. In fact, I now have two U.S. passports because, as I was saying, the, the State Department doesn't allow Americans to travel on a U.S. passport. So as a journalist, if you're pushing to go, you have to make the case to the State Department that it would be in the national security interest of the U.S. for you to go. And if you can persuade them that that's the case, they give you a special second one-entry passport, good for a year to go to North Korea and come back. All of which is to say, I have two U.S. passports. I will be on a plane. I will be heading out, whatever happens in this interview. The person who I'm interviewing has to stay and deal with the consequences, and their family deals with the consequences if they say something that doesn't go down well with the government minder, who is always present. I mean, to, to the relationship that you have with Mr. Kim, there's, he works for the government. Everybody in North Korea works for the government. There is no private industry, or very, very little seeds of it now. So whatever somebody says to me, the government is there hearing, it can be reported. There's, there's no freedom of speech. You're, you're, you are aware and they are aware of this presence. And that Mr. Kim is there not only as the minder listening to what is said, but literally doing the translation. I mean, anywhere else I've traveled in the world, you go to Russia, you hire your own interpreter who's doing, who works for you. <laughs> and yes, they're Russian. And yes, they have to stay and live with whatever mess you've made after you leave. Um, but they're translating what you want them to say. In North Korea, there were, there were multiple occasions where I would ask a question and a minder would say, that is not the right question. I'd say, well, it's the question I'm asking. Could we ask it? No. Oh, wow. And they turn and walk away. And I don't speak Korean. I can't. I'm shut down. You know, they're very effective at controlling the questions you can ask. And, and I assume that goes both ways, that if someone is giving an answer that they think is not the, the right answer, that I'm not ever going to hear it. Right. Right. Well, clearly you're having to walk a fine line as a journalist in that situation. So how do, how do you let your audience know your freedom to report is limited and at the same time not push so hard that you get kicked out of the country altogether? In a country like North Korea, you are very thoughtful about what you say while you are there because you want to be able to leave at some point. And again, I mean, I don't mean to be flip about the risk to the people that I'm talking to. I have a job as a journalist. I also have a job as a human being not to endanger the people who are speaking to me. We filed more than I thought we would be able to file when we were on the ground in North Korea, and that was in part their technical and production challenges in a country that does not have Wi-Fi. Uh, in a country where there is not internet access to the World Wide Web, in a country where you know you swap out on your cell phone and get a North Korean SIM card, um, which gives you access to a clunky, slow, but serviceable 3G network. And then once you're on it, you have to get behind a firewall, behind a VPN, and then you can, you can see the websites you want to see. So there were production and technical challenges, but the main one is 
we reported when we were there what we saw, what I could describe firsthand, facts. We were there, we were invited, as you mentioned, to cover the 70th anniversary celebrations of North Korea. And they were a lot, and they took us to parades and to processions of torches by moonlight and to massive concerts. And we reported on all of that and said, this is what we saw. This is our estimate of the crowd. This is what kinds of people were walking past us and what they were saying. We didn't do anything very long, and we didn't do context and analysis while we were there. We took that tape home, and we, they didn't try to go through our tape in any way. They didn't censor it in any way. Uh, they had no say over what we were writing. But we came back and brought a lot of the tape and did big features on the economy, on schools, on um, this fascinating interview we did with a tour guide at the top of Junche Tower, yeah, which is this huge landmark in central Pyongyang. And we played everything we saw, and then we had a North Korean expert come in and explain, here's the context, here's what you maybe didn't see, here's maybe why they wanted you to see that, here's how typical what's happening in Pyongyang is compared to what might be happening in the province, which could be a different world. And so we were, a lot of what you heard, if you were listening to my reports from NPR, was me walking around a place saying, we're here, I'm describing to you what I see, here are all these questions I have that I can't answer from here. And trying to signal to listeners in that way, I, there is value in being here and seeing something. I mean, what's the alternative? That, that you don't try, that you don't go, um, but you provide context when you're out and when you're back in terms of all of the things that maybe you didn't get to see, that they didn't want you to see. There's actually a long history of journalists reporting from hostile countries. One thinks of CBS correspondent William L. Shira reporting from Berlin during World War II. Would you say it's a given that there's always news in the enemy capital? Oh, there's always news everywhere. I mean, there's always, there was news walking in as I walked in to, to meet you as I walked down uh, 14th Street in Washington today. There's always something. There's always value in going and seeing firsthand and asking what you can ask. And to connect that to the point I was making about, um, and what's the alternative? It's so frustrating to go and realize you're only seeing the government version of things. But there can be such value in what is unspoken, in what they don't want you to see and what they do want you to see. We were taken to factory after factory because that is the government's message right now as it's, it's Kim Jong-un decreed in April, all resources of the government henceforth will be devoted to growing the economy um, and to industry and to promoting the well-being of North Koreans. And so everything they wanted us to see was, here's a silk factory, here's a cosmetics factory, here's a farm that's growing hydroponic vegetables. And we would ask to see things that journalists have been taken to see in past, war memorials, or you know, the buildings where they house nuclear, the nuclear scientists working on the nuclear program, which a year ago, they were very proud to show journalists. But that is not the message this year. This year, it's the industry. Here's another factory. Would you like to interview the factory boss? And you can see a lot from that. And you read, you know, the state-owned newspaper, which is completely on message and all about the economy. And the parade, you know, the massive military parades they took us to for the 70th anniversary celebrations. Much was made of the fact that there were no ICBMs, no intercontinental ballistic missiles on display, as opposed to past parades, because that is not the message. Instead, there were floats about the fishing industry, for example. It's 
an amazing and I think unique thing to Kim Jong-un to be able to pivot your entire country on a dime, to have that amount of total control, the industry and media and the military and the arts and the government all line up when he says in April, we're all about the economy going forward. They're all about the economy going forward. And you can read a lot in terms of what they do let you see. I bet this isn't the last time you'll cover a regime that doesn't really want to be covered. What are some of the lessons learned you filed away for the next time you visit a place where they really don't like a reporter doing her job? Hmm. I suppose on a practical level, you are thoughtful about your security and the security of the people you're working with. Um, so without going into details, uh, our NPR team was very careful about our electronics. Uh, we were careful about what risks we took. Um, in fairness, I felt very safe in North Korea, certainly compared to war zones I've reported from. There's no you know, incoming mortar fire in Pyongyang. You're just being careful in an authoritarian regime. Um, which is not known for celebrating uh, a free press or for its human rights record. The other, I mean, the other takeaway is you operate there, you go back to the basics that are hopefully how you practice journalism anywhere, including here in the U.S. Um, you do your homework so that you have some context for what you're seeing. You are respectful. You ask whatever tough questions you can. I mean, we had discussions before going in if we're able to get a senior government official to give us an interview, which we were not on this trip. But if, if we were, how, how comfortable would I feel asking the tough questions that I would ask them here in the U.S.? And I came down with the decision of thinking, that's our job. You go in, you ask firm questions, you do it in a respectful way. You're mindful of the people who live there, whose life is there long after you've gone. Um, and you be transparent. I, um, I'm not a fan of gotcha questions when I interview people. Um, I'm not a fan of being sneaky. <laughs> um, I like to tell people who I am and why I'm there and what I'm doing um, and why I'm asking these questions and why it's important for my audience to hear the answers. And um, I found those practices worked in North Korea the same way that hopefully they work here. Thanks, Mary Louise. We certainly appreciate your time. We've been talking with NPR correspondent Mary Louise Kelly about the challenges of covering a place like North Korea. I'm Tom Young reporting for Update One at the National Press Club in Washington. You have been listening to Update One, a production of the National Press Club's Broadcast Committee. You can comment on this show or any episode of Update One by going to facebook.com slash pressclubdc or on Twitter at pressclubdc. Thanks for listening to Update One.